I would ask that we remain standing for the reading of Scripture this morning as we continue and this morning come to the conclusion of Mark chapter 5, the Gospel of St. Mark chapter 5. We'll begin reading in verse 34 and read down to the conclusion in verse 43. Let us hear it attend to the Word of God. And Jesus said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. While he was still speaking, some came from the ruler of the synagogue's house who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? As soon as Jesus heard the word that was spoken, he said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not be afraid. Only believe. And he permitted no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. Then he came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and saw a tumult and those who wept and wailed loudly. When he came in, he said to them, Why make this commotion and weep? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they ridiculed him. But when he had put them all outside, he took the father and the mother of the child and those who were with him and entered where the child was lying. Then he took the child by the hand and said to her, Telethah kumi, which is translated, Little girl, I say to you, arise. Immediately the girl arose and walked, for she was twelve years of age, and they were overcome with great amazement. But he commanded them strictly that no one should know it, and said that something should be given her to eat. We'll end our reading of the Holy Scriptures there this morning. Please be seated. The wisdom of King Solomon is celebrated even beyond the Bible, and one story passed far and wide is about two disreputable women claiming a living baby as their own. Uh, You may be familiar with that story. I mean, I grew up hearing it. I I think many of us have, and it even goes beyond uh, Scripture in one of the stories that's known from the Bible. It's found in 1 Kings chapter 3. But in the details of it all, it comes down to this. King Solomon calls for a sword in order that he might slaughter and divide the living baby like a lamb, giving each woman half of the baby. Now, the threat of the baby's death reveals the compassion of the true mother who would give up her child rather than give him over to death. Now, the reversed dilemma is also a tragic reality in this fallen world where someone is faced with choices of human impossibility. We have uh, witnessed these, we've heard about them on the news or come across such stories where someone is faced with rescuing children in a sinking car. There's more than one child, but only one child can be reached at a time. Or in a burning building, Uh, you've heard of stories like that. And then not only historically, but also in this contemporary world, we have heard of the depraved cruelty of terrorists who will force choices on people to choose life or death between their family members or friends who are held captive. It's unconscionable. We don't even want to hear about it. We don't want to think about these things or or much less ourselves being put in such a circumstance. Well, the dilemma of human inability in the natural world being powerless to overrule the unseen causes of death or disease is compounded by the limitations of time and space, unable to be in two places at one time. But in these stories that we have here in Mark chapter 5 that escalate other stories that we've heard about Jesus... By his divine transcendence, there is no compromising of his personal eminence. He is the transcendent God, uncreated creator, come in the wonder and mystery of the incarnation. And he is eminent in his presence with us 
And the one does not compromise the other. It is a wonderful mystery. A mystery that should bring us comfort and assurance and worship Jesus as uniquely the Son of God, the God-man. So chapter 5 of Mark, as the gospel source being uniquely Son of God, Jesus Christ is Lord over the living and the dead, even between this world and the other world. That's what's been unfolded for us increasingly in chapter 5, where Mark's gospel account escalates the astounding power of Jesus over demons, disease, and death. We've looked at these stories. There are three stories that are thematically grouped together. The man in Gadarene who was uh, delivered from the legion of demons. The unnamed woman with uh, her bleeding disease who was healed. And now we come to the third story this morning. uh, The raising of Jairus' daughter from death. All of these stories to reveal the greater power of Jesus to save more than the body. And I don't want you to lose that. I I don't want you to lose that emphasis and see how each time it goes beyond uh, the body. But includes the body, soul, and spirit. So uh, we looked at the first story, verses 1 through 20, the gathering man possessed with a legion of demons. As Jesus passes over to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, to the eastern shore, so he divinely transcends the natural world and the supernatural world with his presence and power over the living and the dead. And we pointed out that his going over to the shore, to the eastern shore, it seems that that was maybe just a night, over a night. And he came back the next day in verses 21 through uh, uh, 34, And we have the story with the woman with the bleeding disease. Uh, As Jesus returned from the other side of the Sea of Galilee back to the western shore, so by his divine eminence, he is present in this natural world with supernatural power to save body, soul, and spirit. That brings us then to the third story, verses 35 through uh, 43, the last story in this series. And we just read those scriptures where we hear of the Honorable Jairus, who was one of the synagogue rulers. And he comes to Jesus pleading for his dying daughter's life. As Jesus is divinely transcendent and imminent between worlds, so he is the Lord of the living and the dead as these stories unfold. The Holy Scriptures reveal what human imagination and superstitions cannot originate. And that is that the uncreated God who is transcendent and imminent in the worlds of his creation. He is not a monster, but he is a just and merciful Lord and Savior. And I hope that you see that in these stories, in the reality that there is indeed an unseen world, that unseen world of spiritual reality of Jesus dealing with the legion of demons, of that unseen world that is part of this natural world, but is beyond our ability to control in terms of What causes disease? This woman who was suffering for 12 years with a bleeding disease. And we talked last week about how um, that was debilitating and and the trouble and the uh, compassion we should have for her as Jesus showed. And then, of course, the the unseen causes of death that could be uh, in our next breath or our next step. And I don't say those things to make you afraid, but to bring us to reality, to jolt us to reality. That that's what uh, Jesus is showing and dealing with us here. And that God is not a monster, the uncreated God who is transcendent and imminent, though it's displayed in human imagination as a monster, as something to be feared. And we understand why. Because it can't be controlled. It's beyond our control. It's out of our control. But what is revealed to us in Scripture is that God has made himself known to us most compassionately. In the person of his son, uniquely son of God, Jesus Christ. He's not a monster, but he's a merciful Lord and Savior. Now, you might remember that 
uh, there's an overlapping as Jesus comes back and Jairus meets him on the shore before the woman interrupts his course and going to Jairus' house. So there's a bit of an overlap. The Honorable Jairus is one of the synagogue rulers. He was recognized by the jostling crowd and he was given way to Jesus. Now, as uh, one of the synagogue rulers, he would have been a public and important man in the community. Uh, he would have known Jesus previously by acquaintance because Jesus had been in the synagogue and also by reputation of the things that had been told about Jesus in that community and around, while the crowds were gathering to him and waiting on him even when he came back from the other side of the Sea of Galilee. But one thing I want you to understand and really point out about this story about Jairus is that Jairus was a man of faith. He had faith in Jesus as one greater than the synagogue. So we don't want to exclude that, even though we know there are many rulers, uh, religious leaders and rulers who uh, uh, were hateful toward Jesus and who plotted his death, and that escalated and became more and more. There are also a number of, of those religious leaders who did believe in Jesus. And Jairus is one of them that is uh, identified for us here. He comes to Jesus with impassioned pleading for his only little daughter. Uh, we don't know if this was his only child, but Luke tells us it was his only daughter. He uses a diminutive form to talk about her in such cherished and tender ways as his little daughter. He's pleading for her life, and he receives Jesus' full compassion in the midst of the pressing crowd. Now, the timing of the interrupting story of the woman with a bleeding disease that, that interrupts the, the course going over to Jairus' house, it's also a lesson in divine providence. Jesus called this woman to public testimony of her saving faith and validated her as a daughter in the family of God because of her faith. But the, there are two daughters in the stories here. Two daughters by natural birth and by supernatural birth. When Jesus says to the woman who is healed, daughter, your faith has made you well, he identifies her as within the family of God. He owns her as a daughter in the family of God by faith. And then he says, go in peace, settles her heart and her, the troubled soul that she had, and she was healed of her affliction. She would no longer not only have that affliction to deal with that was debilitating, but also that caused her to be ceremonially unclean in terms of the uh, requirements under the old covenant in her ability to come into the, the synagogue or into the temple. But more important than all of that, Jesus gives peace and speaks peace to her soul. At the same time, word comes that another little daughter, the 12-year-old daughter of Jairus, has died. And the news that comes is full of pain and sorrow. And they come and say uh, to Jairus, don't bother the teacher any further. It's too late. And so if you put yourself in Jairus' place, can you imagine hearing Jesus speak these words of peace to this woman and then immediately hearing the word that your own dearly beloved little child, little daughter, had died. Now, over the past 12 years, this woman had suffered with this debilitating condition. What I want you to see is that coincides with this little girl being 12 years old. According to Jewish tradition, when she uh, passed her 12th birthday, the day after her 12th birthday, she would be no longer considered a child. So we're told that she was 12 years old. So there's a coinciding of 12 years of this woman suffering and debilitating and getting worse and worse in the things that we talked about last week. And now the fact that this little uh, girl, this daughter of Jairus is 12 years old. She's past her 12th birthday. She's identified for us as being 12 years old. Providentially, 
These 12 years are superintended for the day of Jesus' presence and power. Uh, we don't know if, if Jairus was familiar with this woman. We talked about the fact that she would have been um, uh, not allowed into the synagogue and uh, some of the circumstances relating to her particular disease and the contamination under the Old Covenant. So we don't know if Jairus knew this woman. We don't know if she had come uh, to temple or to um, a synagogue privately as their provisions were made. But nonetheless, on those 12 years, there was a coincidence of God's providence that now they're brought together. So in verses 35 through 36, we read of Jesus' urgent and authoritative words that are intently exclaimed to Jairus. And these words are for all believers. What is it that, that uh, Jesus says in verse 35 while he was still speaking? Well, while Jesus was still speaking to this woman, some came from the ruler of the synagogue's house who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? As soon as Jesus, Jesus heard them say this. No doubt Jairus heard it as well, but Jesus overheard it. Jesus heard the word that was spoken. And Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not be afraid, only believe. Do not be fearing, continue believing. So these urgent words that Jesus speaks, they're authoritative words. They're intently exclaimed to Jairus, but they're for all of us. Stop fearing, continue believing. Now, some Christians may have a long time of struggle and suffering while others may experience sudden and vehement troubles that come upon them. I believe we can have some measure of identity with what's going on in this story. There are those who keep praying and asking the Lord to bring relief. It may be of 12 years, longer or shorter, but it's been a long and debilitating time. You continue to pray and ask the Lord. Day by day you seek His sustaining and keeping you. And upon your lips and upon your uh, soul, there are these continued words that the Lord would relieve your pain and your suffering. And Jesus says, Stop fearing, keep believing. My grace is sufficient for whatever extent of time. Remember what the Apostle Paul suffered and how he sought the Lord three times, asking the Lord that he would remove that thorn in the flesh, whatever it might have been. Uh, Paul thought it was an inhibit, that it inhibited his ability to more fully serve the Lord. And Jesus said, no, my grace is made perfect in your weakness. It's hard for us to grapple with that. And we don't know what God is doing coinciding over these years of suffering. But like the story tells us too, there are others who have a sudden and vehement Struggle of faith. Out of nowhere, something comes that sets them back, that brings them great distress. In this case, of course, it was the death of Jairus' daughter. It may be death, it may be some other circumstances, but nonetheless, it comes upon us like a bolt of lightning. We feel like we've been hit by lightning. And so the whole point of these stories is to tell us these things come, and we're unable to avoid them, we're not unable to control them. We must look to the Lord, the Lord's mercy and His compassion and grace to care about us even in these times and the things that bring us together in the family of faith. As I said, this woman and Jairus and this little uh, daughter of his, their, life, their uh, paths may never have crossed. We don't know. But providentially, they're coincided in the day of Jesus' presence and power. And I look around us and I realize that how would we have ever known one another? How would our paths ever have crossed? How would we ever have come into contact with one another 
but that within the family of faith we are brought together here to love and to care, to pray, and to, to um, bear one another's burdens in, in Christ. I find it uh, a bit of a puzzle, to be honest with you, that over the years that I've been here, uh, going out to the local grocery stores or markets or different places, restaurants, only a handful of times have I ever crossed paths coincidentally with people from the congregation. Now, we plan to meet somewhere that's different, but I would have thought it would have been much more common to have seen someone in the grocery store or at the gas station or uh, at a restaurant or, or, or something like that. But it's happened only a handful of times. So it is providentially that our lives coincide with one another in the providence of God and getting to know one another and love and care for one another. So we are to pray and have compassion upon one another. Now, human words, even of a common sympathy, are inadequate to speak peace to the soul. You see, Jesus spoke to the woman's soul. He's told her to go in peace. He spoke of her faith. He spoke of her being a a, a daughter in the family of God. And so it's by a divine authority, owned by the Holy Spirit of God, that those words speak peace into our soul. Human words cannot do that. No matter how compassionate, no matter how sympathetic those human words may be, they cannot ultimately give you peace in your soul. Now in verses 37 through 39, we find Jesus also speaking shocking and disturbing words to the worldly mourners. And it echoes the soul of the gospel throughout the world. Jesus says, why make this commotion and weep? The child is not dead, but sleeping. This is a description used in Scripture, but it's reserved only for believers, which we'll talk a little bit more about. But look at verses 37 through 39. And he permitted no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. Then he came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and saw a tumult or a commotion and those who wept and wailed loudly. When he came in, he said to them, Why make this commotion and weep? The child is not dead, but sleeping. I said, these are shocking and disturbing words that Jesus speaks to these worldly mourners. But it echoes the soul of the gospel throughout the world. Jesus can say authoritatively, don't make this commotion, don't weep, don't show this display. Not because he's without compassion or hard-hearted, but because he looks beyond that and knows more. Jairus had sought him out because he believed that he was greater than the synagogue. He was greater than the threat of death that was coming upon his daughter. Jesus says the child is not dead, but sleeping. I want you to listen to that description. Because I said that's a repeated description that's used in Scripture, but it's only reserved for believers that they are not dead, but they sleep. Now, Jesus limited the apostolic witnesses to the inner circle of Peter, James, and John. And he continued as they were the eyewitnesses And from the Holy Spirit, verbal inspiration would record and keep this story for us through the transmission of Holy Scripture. That's something we shouldn't overlook. Uh, There are other reasons or other speculations as to why Jesus chose only Peter, James, and John as the inner circle at this point and at other points in his ministry. But the main thing I want you to see is that they are eyewitnesses. And that as eyewitnesses, they were also inspired by the Holy Spirit to give verbal testimony 
and also written testimony so that we have authenticated the word of God to us in the scriptures and that this story happened. And not only were Peter, James, and John were there, but also the mother and father, Jairus, and his wife were also there to witness this. But the world of unbelievers, even those who are culturally religious, do not know what to do about death. Now, I don't want to make too big a deal out of it, but I want you to recognize that there was an anticipation. There was a a, a buzz around the community because Jairus was an important man. And his daughter was known to be at death's door. How suddenly that had happened, we're not really told, but that she was still living at the time that Jairus came to Jesus. And sometime in the interim, she died. But that the local people were ready and prepared to display to Jairus their regard and their respect in having these mourners and this commotion made, this loud wailing and these mourners who gathered immediately when the daughter died, when the word went out. Because the world of unbelievers, as I said, even those who are culturally religious, they don't know what to do about death. And for an important person like Jairus, the only thing we can do is to exaggerate our common tradition. So many mourners are gathered because he's an important man. They're making a wailing tumult and commotion outside of the home to display and to show honor to Jairus and his family for the heartache and the the, uh, unspeakable sorrow that he and his wife and perhaps other members of the family are now going through in the death of his dear and beloved little daughter. It's not that these people are wicked and making a mockery. It's that they don't know what else to do. So we have to do something bigger and better. If we have one or two mourners for the common people, let's have 10 or 20 mourners for Jairus and his family. We'll do something bigger and better and more exaggerated from our cultural traditions to try to show our honor to Jairus and his family. But I want you to hear Jesus' words. Jesus' words are parabolic. Remember back in Mark chapter 4, Jesus taught in parables? Well, Jesus' words here are parabolic. They're spiritually validated by Scripture interpreting Scripture. Jesus says, this is what the parable means. And Jesus' words here is that she is not dead, but sleeping. Scripture interprets these words of Jesus and His power over death. You see, the little girl was truly physically dead. Jesus is not speaking metaphorically. He's speaking parabolically. Jesus is telling us something that goes beyond human ability. He's telling us something of heaven's wisdom. And he's using words that we can understand. The girl was truly and physically dead, but not finally and spiritually dead. She was not in a state of permanent soul sleep, but she was kept by the promise of God for resurrection. Now in your study notes, I've given you multiple references to this term of those who fall asleep in Jesus or those who are asleep in the Lord. doesn't mean they're not dead. It doesn't mean they're in a permanent state of soul sleep. The Bible tells us that there is consciousness after death. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. The point that's being made here is that there's two kinds of death. There is a physical death and there is a spiritual death, just like there are two kinds of resurrection. There's the resurrection of the soul in regeneration out of that spiritual death, and there is the resurrection of the body and soul and spirit at the great day of judgment, that Jesus is the pledged, and that we through Jesus are beneficiaries of both resurrections. If we have received the first resurrection of our soul out of the death of sin, 
We are dead in our trespasses and sin. We cannot raise ourselves to the dead, to, to life. We can only be called to life by Jesus, as Jesus says to this little girl or to Lazarus or to the widow of Nain's son or to others, his powerful word of resurrection, arise. Same power of God that says to us, you who are dead, believe, arise, and be dead no more. And that will come too on the great day of judgment when we are called forth from the grave and we will be reunited, body, soul, and spirit, in the great power and glorification of the resurrection So Jesus says to those who are there, this girl is truly physically dead, but she is not finally and spiritually dead. And he proves and demonstrates that. Um, Just a, a passing note here. It is possible that those whom Jesus raised from the dead during his earthly ministry ascended with him uh, in his ascension to heaven. Uh, I don't press that too hard. It's something to consider. I think it's a very likely possibility. But then we come to verses 40 through 43. And they ridiculed him. But when he had put them out all outside, he took the father and the mother of the child and those who were with him and entered where the child was lying. Then he took the child by the hand and said to her, Talitha Kumi, which is translated, little girl, I say to you, arise. Immediately the girl arose and walked. For she was 12 years of age, and they were overcome with great amazement. But he commanded them strictly that no one should know it, and said that something should be given her to eat. So Jesus' affectionate and effectual words of resurrection guarantees personal resurrection life for all Christian believers as the elect of God. Little girl, I say to you, arise. This is not just a historical story. We've talked about uh, in these stories how time collapses. And the thing that Jesus says here, he says to all believers, Jesus has called us to life. If we're alive in Christ, it's because Jesus has called us out personally. He has saved us and he's called us out of the deadness of our sin into life in the spirit. And it is Jesus who guarantees our resurrection life, not only through the first resurrection, but also in the resurrection to come. So Jesus excluding the scorning unbelievers and including his chosen witnesses, Peter, James, and John, Jairus, and his wife. Jesus excluding the scorning unbelievers who ridiculed him, put them out, but includes those who are with him, Peter, James, and John, and Jairus, and his wife. This is a preview. I don't want you to miss this. This is a preview of the final resurrection and judgment to come. As Jesus excludes the unbelievers. And Jesus gathers and includes the believers. In the great day that will come. The day of resurrection and judgment. Now Jesus spoke in Aramaic. Which is recorded here in Mark. He spoke with compassion and condescension. Using the human language of those who were present. We sometimes come across these things and we wonder why. And Mark tells us here. Jesus spoke in Aramaic. It's probably the... the, basic common language even though greek would have been known in hebrew uh, some of these things but it seems that aramaic was the common language and jesus spoke in the common language condescending and accommodating them to know what he said you know jesus didn't even have to speak a word jesus didn't have to go to jairus house we all know that because of his transcendence and his eminence as the son of god our savior and lord he was not bound in those ways But he's accommodating in great compassion. 
And he's leaving us a lesson and a preview. And so here, Jesus even speaks in the common language that they might hear what he has to say is translated and kept and transmitted to us that we might know what he had to say. I think that shouldn't be lost on us, but we should recognize how the Lord even accommodates and uses a thing like human language, which I believe that is of his originating anyway. And he accommodates us to build our faith that we might know what he has to say. We can have confidence in the Holy Scriptures. They have been given by the inspiration of God through the Holy Spirit. They have been kept, they've been uh, transmitted and translated for us. Kept by the power of God so that I can say to you, I am preaching the word of God to you. I am telling you that Jesus spoke these words in Aramaic because they're in the scriptures for us. They're translated for us in our own English language so that I can say to you, this is what Jesus said. Little girl, arise. I say to you, arise. And I hope that you too can enter in with faith to know that Jesus said to you, When you were dead in your trespasses and sin, Jesus said to you, Jesus called you by name, and Jesus said, Arise, live and believe, and confess me before the world. Now, Jesus' commanding actions and words fulfilled and superseded, went beyond the Mosaic law as he touches and restores life to the dead body of this little girl. How does he do it? By the works of the Holy Spirit as the real agent of purification symbolized by the waters of purification. Remember last week we talked about the woman with the issue of blood and how she was affected by the Mosaic Law and the Mosaic Covenant in terms of the regulations of purification. She would have been restricted from the temple, from the synagogue, and even in the common concourse of life, in in furniture and clothing. Anything she came into contact with would be contaminated for the rest of that day until evening is what the Scriptures say. Now, we turn back to Leviticus or to Numbers and we read about the restrictions that were put upon coming in contact with the dead body. This little girl died. She was dead. Anyone who came into contact to her with her would have been contaminated for the rest of that day. There were further restrictions for priests and what they were to do and how they were to go to, uh, through purification in reference to seven days. And even the high priest, even greater restrictions against the high priest, he was not even to come in contact with the dead of his own family during his administration as high priest. So the circle gets tighter and tighter in reference to the contamination even of the presence of a dead body. And those are troubling things to us. They unsettle us. We don't quite know what to do with them. But this is what I want you to understand. Jesus, we're told specifically, grabs the hand. He reaches out and and takes the hand, the limp, dead hand of the body of this little girl. Jesus is the high priest, not by... Old Testament standards, but in fulfillment. And in that fulfillment and superseding of the Mosaic law, while there were regulations for purification and rituals of washing, if you were to go back and read these scriptures in Numbers, what Jesus is able to do because of who He is, is to fulfill and supersede even though that symbolic washing for purification by the greater and real agent of the Holy Spirit who washes away the taint and the corruption of death. Jesus was never corrupted by the taint of death, even in the grave. He was not corrupted by the taint of death and holding the hand of this little dead girl. 
And all the Mosaic regulations are fulfilled and superseded because of the greater power and agent of the Holy Spirit who does what water cannot do. Water can't wash away sin. Water cannot wash away the corruption in body, soul, and spirit. Under the Levitical administration, God gave these um, rituals and regulations symbolically. Now, whatever hygienic qualities they may have had is secondary to the point that they were symbolic. And they could not do what could only be done spiritually. Just like the sacrifices, the blood of animals could not take away sin, but symbolized what had to be done in a greater sacrifice. So Jesus here, how is he not uh, contaminated? How does he not violate the Mosaic law? Because he's greater. And the power and presence of the Holy Spirit is the agent of purification. So that there is no corruption of death even though Jesus touches her dead body. I just think that's awesome. And I hope that you might dwell and think upon that. And think about it in terms of what is in store for us. As we too face the separation of body and soul that's unnatural and never intended. Death is not natural, but death for the believer is not a punishment. It's a necessary change, and it does not corrupt God or His promises. It does not corrupt Jesus. As Jesus was uncorrupted even in the grave, so Jesus is uncorrupted even when we die, but we are never separated from Him. What can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus? Nothing, not even death itself. And so I want you to see that in this episode of Jesus restoring and resurrecting this little girl. Now the immediate response to the life-giving words of Jesus offers a twofold lesson about the first and the second resurrection, which I've already mentioned to you. The first resurrection is the resurrection of regeneration. When we are resurrected out of the deadness of our sin and called to life in Jesus Christ, it's the resurrection of the soul. And then the second promised resurrection is the resurrection of the body, soul, and spirit in the great day in glorification as it is that uh, has been pledged and promised to us through the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus also concludes this episode with a twofold command, bypassing the great amazement. You see, when she rose up, she was 12 years old, and she got up immediately responding to the words and the commands of Jesus, and they were greatly amazed. Again, we have these um, uh, expressions given to us of how they were just blown away. As you could understand, they well would be. We should be too, as we read it in Scripture. Great, overwhelming, unspeakable amazement. Even with that collective reverent fear of who is this that is greater, with a greater power than death itself. He calms the storm. He commands and banishes the demons. He speaks peace to a woman and relieves her of her bleeding and distress for those many years, and now he speaks the words, he touches the body, he raises the dead girl to life, and they're filled with amazement, those few who were gathered there. But what does Jesus do? He bypasses the amazement. He doesn't dwell on the He doesn't need that amazement. He receives our worship, not because he has an, uh, some kind of uh, low esteem or something. He receives our worship because he's worthy of it for who he is. And in so doing, he bypasses that 
great amazement they had. And he speaks a twofold command. I want you to listen carefully to this. The twofold command that Jesus gives in verse 43. But he commanded them strictly that no one should know it and said that something should be given to her to eat. Does that pique your interest? <laughs> what? Why would Jesus say that? It seems kind of anticlimactic, doesn't it? Here are people in great amazement because he's raised this little girl from the dead. But then he says strictly, don't tell anybody about it. Now there's a lot of speculation that what Jesus was saying there is he needed to get out of town before the crowds got around him, before the word got out. Or others suggest, this is kind of the majority report here, that Jesus didn't want an escalating of conflict with the religious leaders before the time, prematurely. So he didn't want it spread far and wide. I don't think those are unrealistic ideas, but I don't think they fit the immediate context here. Jesus charged them, Jesus commanded them that they would not, strictly, that they would not tell others about it. They wouldn't dwell on this. They wouldn't, in other words, make this little girl a sideshow. They wouldn't take her out and start parading her around. And we've seen that happen, haven't we? We've seen how people have manipulated and used even children even within the broad parameters of Christianity, there are those today who will still parade around idols made after the fashion of, of children, as saints or whatever it might be. There are those who violate Jesus' very words here that you don't make a sideshow of his miraculous power. And then what does he say, which I think goes along with this? Give her something to eat like a normal child. Can you imagine the temptation and the tendency to somehow make this child a sideshow and even turn her into a, a, a point of veneration and worship? That's in the human heart. And Jesus strictly warns against it. Don't make her into a sideshow. She's a normal child. Give her something to eat. We need to learn that lesson. We need to keep that lesson. We need to hear how it is that Jesus ends chapter 5 of Mark with that emphatic command to us. So the dilemma of human inability in the natural world being powerless to overrule the unseen causes of disease and death is compounded by the limitations of time and space, unable to be in two places at one time. But Jesus' divine transcendence is not compromised by His personal eminence. Don't look to the world. Don't try to figure it out in the world. Don't make sideshows and, and set up these impressive, amazing things we think that will get people's attention. But no, let us continue in faith to trust and to pray and to come before the Lord in worship as He has authorized it. Let us continue to hear His Word, His Word that can speak peace to our souls. And look to His providence that coincides our lives in the body of Christ, in the family of faith. Let us trust the promise of who Jesus is as our Creator. Even as we confess this morning and look to the Scriptures in making our confessions that we have been made new in the, the image of Him who created us in terms of that restored humanity and what Jesus would have us be. We don't need sideshows. We don't need to try to amaze people and to get their attention. We need to be faithful to the Word of God and we need to normally care for one another in our abilities and in our love. And so, 
I hope these lessons will settle upon us that more and more we might look to the Lord Jesus who is the source of the gospel. When we talk about the gospel, I hear so much today about restoring the gospel or keeping the gospel pure. I'm for all that. But the only way we can do that is to know what the scriptures say about the gospel and identify identify for us what is the gospel. What is the good news? It's sourced in the person of Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God. And that He is the divine, one and only, truly God-man. Son of God, Son of man. That He alone is transcendent and imminent. He is not bound or limited by His creation. But He is also not so separated from it, but rather tells us He is present with us. And that is a great mystery and a great wonder of our faith that sets us apart and will continue with us not only to the great day of judgment and resurrection, but also into eternity itself. That is the hope that we have through Christ our Lord. We'll continue on next week on into chapter 6 of uh, the Gospel of St. Mark. So I hope that you'll continue reading and praying uh, about this scripture and um, for the depth of the, the benefit that we have and blessing from the Word of God. Our concluding and parting hymn this morning is...